And welcome to today's podcast. Uh, I'm Pete Smith, Director of the Centre for Disability Employment Research and Practice. And today we'll be joined by Professor Keith McBilly. Uh, Keith is an acknowledged expert in the field of uh, behaviour support. We'll be having a discussion around uh, positive behaviour support and employment. Uh, Keith should join us any second now, allowing for the tech to work, which we can never tell, but hopefully it will work for us this morning as cleanly and efficiently as it occasionally does. So today we're going to talk about the area of behaviour support in the workplace, uh, particularly for people with disabilities, clearly. Um, and this is an interesting area because it seems to be one that's overlooked often. Um, usually behaviours in the workplace, uh, uh, we all recognise that they can be forms of communication. Uh, they can be the result of a trigger uh, in the workplace, a negative event in the workplace. Uh, but largely, what we often see is uh, unexamined. Um, if we don't react to it and do something positive uh, about what we're seeing, then often this leads to uh, unemployment. Uh, those situations where, where what will happen is, as a uh, disability um, support person or organisation, what will happen is that the first you know about it is that you get a phone call from the employer. Uh, the employer, unfortunately, in my experience, usually rings up when, when the problem is magnified to the point of, um, well, let's put it bluntly, uh, the person is about to be excluded from employment. So this is a, um, an opportunity uh, missed. Uh, it's an area that's overlooked and it'll be the topic of our discussion this morning uh, as soon as Keith arrives in the studio. Uh, he has messaged me to say that he's um, relaxed and ready and waiting. Um, so hopefully any tick of the clock now, Keith will appear uh, in the studio. Um, Maria, Lauren, welcome this morning. Um, uh, listeners are appearing, which is brilliant. Um, let's see if I can survive this, having only had three hours sleep after working until someone got the hour on a project we're doing in Kenya. So hopefully Keith will appear shortly. But this is, again, let's go back to the topic itself, um, often overlooked. Now, we do have within the NDIS the capacity to, to deliver behaviour support. Um, the key, of course, is that often this is being pushed along the barrow of it being a clinical exercise requiring some type of allied health expert. But my experience suggests otherwise, uh, this can be something that we can train staff on. And certainly overnight uh, and this morning, um, I've received a, a paper talking about just that. Looks like Keith's entered the studio. Um, and Keith, can I hear you there? Hi, Peter. It's Keith McVilly here. Brilliant. So without too many problems, Keith has actually found the land, landing point on the software, which apparently on at, at his place is a deck chair. I hope your deck chair is comfortable, Keith. It is. It's a nice green deck chair at my place. And uh, also in the, in the last five minutes, to add to the excitement, the mains power has just been switched off in our street. So battery <laughs> batteries all charged and uh, and thanks to Telstra we're still live to air <laughs> the true epitome of a lockdown they're taking your though, yeah. <laughs> though, though one could say we're we're somewhat in the dark but uh, we, we will press on regardless Peter excellent Keith so our topic today Keith uh, is behavior support uh, and uh, I'll be the first to admit that I, I recall it must be 
gee, well over a decade and a half ago where uh, you launched the uh, guide on using behaviour support uh, for support workers. Um, can you give us a bit of a background of behaviour support? Yeah. Look, the, the, the guide that we, we published, um, in fact, originally published back in about 2000 or so, was uh, a book called Positive Behaviour Support, Evidence-Based Practice, Improving Quality of Life. And that was published with the support of the Australasian Society for the Study of Intellectual Disability. Uh, and that book has since been uh, Re, um, yeah, revised and uh, and gone into press on a, on a, on a couple of occasions. It's still one of the only, uh, in fact, it is the only uh, definitive Australian guide uh, to positive behaviour support. Right. So uh, I, I do have a copy of that actually, and I and I actually vividly remember that when you came up to Brisbane for that, we were in the middle of a torrential flood and and downpouring and over at the Martyr Centre there. Um, memories. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> let's go to the subject the subject itself. Often, when we come across the notion of behaviour support with uh, people with intellectual developmental disability, it's using in the context of some type of challenging behavioural adverse event. Why do we wait, Keith? Yeah. Why? Why? Why do we wait? Again, we have the technology there to anticipate so much of this and to put in place the strategies that are needed to prevent these circumstances occurring, but all too often positive behaviour support is, is brought in after the effect. I mean, where we're at with positive behaviour support is that we have 30 or 40 years of well-documented scientific evidence that the strategies, the processes, the procedures that come together to make this concept of positive behaviour support, we know that it actually works and we know that we're good assessments are put in place. We know that where good strategies are developed that are consistent with the findings of those assessments and that there's fidelity to implementation, um, the issues can be addressed. I mean, I suppose one of the important things that we need to focus on is that positive behaviour support is primarily not about changing people's behaviour, but about changing the contexts in which people live out their lives. And in the context of today's discussion, it's about working with the workplace and improving the person's quality of, the quality of life. And in this instance, it's about working towards improving the quality of their working life. And indeed, I think we'll go on and probably talk a, bit, a little bit later uh, in today's uh, podcast around the importance of improving the quality of the working life of everybody in the workplace their workmates, their employers, their line managers and the like, and where you can apply positive behaviour support to make it a healthier and a happier workplace for everybody, you're going to get it right for the person with disability. Right. So when we start to look at it in, in today's workforce, um, we're talking about a situation clearly this is a post-support exercise in the workforce or in the workplace. We're talking about a, an environment that is is not a clinical setting. It's a workplace. Uh, the individual is being supported by uh, disability employment uh, support workers, uh, consultants, um, more like, likely post-support people. Now, these are not clinical people. So we need to 
consider the possibility that the delivery of this type of um, support, PBS or uh, whatever you term you want to use for it, is going to be delivered by non-clinical people. Now, if we go down the pathway of clinic, clinic using clinicians, then my view would be that that's almost going to be a hands-up situation. People are going to, who are going to say, well, this is too hard. I can't find a clinician. I'm not going to bother, which ends up being uh, a self-defeating scenario. How do we address that? Yeah, look, I, I think this, this is the crux of the issue and I don't think we've quite worked out how to do this perfectly as yet. This is part of the journey of developing our understanding of customised employment processes and developing the skills base of customised employment practitioners. And, uh, and look, one of the things that I think it's, it's worth discussing going forward um, and something that we're going to need to do a lot of work on um, in, the, in the years ahead is making sure that positive behaviour support is not seen as something that is reserved for a very specialist class of clinician. It's, it's not the preserve of a psychologist, for example. But implementing positive behaviour support needs to be seen as a core skill set of every customised employment practitioner. Um, and indeed, I would hope that um, implementing positive behaviour support could be seen as a core skill set of every employer. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting point because we've been having that discussion yesterday over this topic um, around you know, how do we make this a skill set for employment consultants. And interestingly enough, in the dead of the night, um, what tends to happen is a, a, a journal article turn up, an abstract uh, and actually a pre-draft um, has turned up from the CQL Institute, um, Quality, Institute of Quality Leadership in the US, where they're looking at um, challenging behaviour and their research or their review tells them that, th that one of the in underpinning characteristics or one of the modifying factors would be is around dignity and respect, uh, which for me is interesting to see that because uh, in my uh, thesis research, then one of the number one characteristics of that supports successful outcomes is the notion of respect, uh, which underpins trust. Um, so it, it's we're starting to see some of the underlying factors appear in print a little bit more often. I mean, obviously they were always been there, but now they're a little bit more apparent in in publications. So I, I guess that raises the question from my point of view. If dignity and respect are uh, underpinning characteristics that support the, the mollification of challenging behaviours, then it seems to indicate that we're talking about people's belief systems and potentially saying, okay, what we need to change in the, in the, in the, in the setting is the belief systems around the capacity of an individual. And when I see dignity and respect, that to me comes back to choice and control. So it seems to point to the idea of, of supporting the individual to have more control, more choice in their environment. Yeah, look, I think that's a key, a key issue, Peter. Um, so often in the past, um, behaviour intervention um, has been more about the imposition of what we deem to be socially acceptable and normalised behaviours on a person. And all too often, uh, we've engaged not only with restrictive practices uh, in terms of curtailing people's exercise of choice and control and self-determination, 
but we've also imposed quite punitive and punishment-based practices. And one of the underlying elements of positive behaviour support is that it focuses on changes to the environment, first and foremost, to make that environment more conducive to harnessing the best that comes of the person and also creating an environment in which the person can exercise maximum choice and control and then developing their skills, their skills so that they can do a better job, get a, a sense of satisfaction out of, out of what the work that they're doing, um, to demonstrate to others that they are competent. And when you start to work along those lines and people are seen as competent in the workplace, um, their fellow workmates are more inclined to reach out to them, help them, dare I say, intervene early in difficult situations rather than leaving the person isolated in the workplace, struggling on their own, building up frustrations and, and then the inevitable behavioural explosion. So mm -hmm. where we can actually skill up a person to do a better job, where we can skill up a person so that their workmates see them as a competent contributor to the workplace, we're actually building positive behaviour support strategies. We're building those all-important early intervention preventative strategies. So this, this to me, this starts to point to um, something like you know, causal agency theory. Um, it, it, it clearly illustrates to me that the notion of behaviour support isn't, isn't something that sits by itself, but it's part of a, of a bigger picture of, of skills that employment supports and indeed natural supports need to have developed so that we can, and I'm not going to say eliminate challenging behaviour because that's just a nonsense, but I, th I think it points to a larger skill set that potentially even, even if you might think if you look at employment practices are usually based around the idea of the consultant and the employer, um, maybe what we're talking about here is a bigger investment in the individual around that work that, that is generally referred to as self-determination. Um, maybe this is, this is rather than looking at from the point of view that we have to elicit or put in place some sort of behaviour support mechanism or skills in the consultant, realistically, we probably... It's probably a simpler proposition um, by providing more of a focus on the idea of the individual and their capacity to exercise choice and control. Yeah, and I think a lot of the solutions don't come by adding complexity or adding additional processes or indeed adding additional people to this. But if we start with what, for example, the basic discovery process has to offer, and that we look to that discovery process not only as a way of getting to know the person's vocational likes and dislikes, their preferences and priorities, so that we can get a good person job later on down from a purely vocational outcome point of view, but that we use that discovery process to really get an understanding of what makes this person tick, what is likely to cause them to get stressed or agitated and on the other side of it, what are the things that help them to calm down? What are the things that help the person to feel comfortable and relaxed more generally? And then we start to think about how we can build those in to the work environment. 
So I suppose what I'm saying is let's let's take the technology that we have uh, within customised employment, let's take the discovery process and look beyond simply using the discovery process to get a person job fit and look at just a little bit more broadly about how we can use that discovery process to understand the person better, their communication style, their communication preferences, and to build all of this into creating a new job for them. So, so this, this tends to point to uh, another aspect of, of, of the discovery process that potentially bridges uh, discovery and job development so that we don't, you know, when we start to answer the question about who is this person, we actually have to dig a little bit deeper and find out what, you know, when we look for their ideal conditions of employment where, where the job makes sense, we've got to little, dig a little bit deeper into if that's where it makes sense, what other skills does the individual need to be able to survive in that environment, which then potentially makes give probably a little bit more laser focus to the, the job development in the sense that we you know, we have our vocational themes which which guide the job development process, but maybe we need a little bit dig a little bit deeper into those those vocational themes and go okay. What are the conditions, the environmental conditions in there that match up with the client a little bit more perfectly, which probably would eliminate some of the, the obvious vocational uh, um, placements and say, well, you know what, that environment is not going to match up with the client. They're not going to be able to cope with it. Almost, it, it almost is in a funny sort of way. It's almost like the sort of things that we do when we work with people with, with autism where we look at the sensory. We're really saying, okay, what's in that environment that could have an impact on the person, whether it be sensory or otherwise, that could create some sort of a condition that would give us that negative outcome. Yeah, and, and it's, it's understanding those precursor conditions that, that's so important for the employment consultant to, to pick up early on and to be able to make an appraisal using that understanding of that workplace and also working with the employer to work out what is reasonable adjustment in the workplace given those circumstances. But I think the, the other side of that is, is also, um, I think we're really good in the employment space of looking at the, the breakdown of the skills uh, that are necessary to perform a particular task. Maybe we're getting pretty smart at using um, systematic instruction uh, to help the person acquire those skills using task analysis and, and all of those sorts of techniques. And um, it, it, it's one thing to teach the person how to, to greet the customer and how to use the cash register on the front desk and, and, uh, and to facilitate a, a sale, for example. But we also need to make some sort of assessment of the person's own self-management skills. So when the customer doesn't have um, the, a credit card that's going to work through the swipe system, um, when those heated exchanges happen at the front counter about, but, but you're charging me this and, and it's said on the shelf that this product was discounted, why aren't I getting the discounted price? We need to be able to understand and to help the person develop not only the skills of running the register, 
but also the skills of managing their own emotions. And I'm not really confident that we've really addressed this concern in the employment area. We're very operational in our skills development and I'm not sure whether we're paying enough attention to developing people's self-management skills. We almost presume that they bring those with them to the workplace. And I don't think we can presume that. Well, I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think, what, you know, we're starting to talk about things like, you know, situational anxiety. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and people would look at that and go, well, you know, that's just that person. But the reality is if you look at our, all of our current experiences, particularly here in Victoria where we're, where we're in lockdown again for another bout of the virus, continuing bout of the virus, uh, it, it seems to illustrate to me that, uh, I mean, I'll be the first to admit um, I'm struggling with it. Um, uh, I think many of us are. And that, that is, that to me, this points out the situation we're in. So it's a real a neon sign, situational anxiety. So, again, it illustrates that this is actually quite obvious and quite simple, but it points to the fact that the employment process, particularly the customised employment process and discovery, is simple, but it's complex in the sense that it's simple to do if you have the right training and the right skill sets. And we're, we're highlighting right here, right now, that, that one aspect of the job development, the job support, is that it is how to deal with these particular situational anxieties that, that create the behaviours that, that often lead to unemployment. We're not doing that. We actually haven't developed a mechanism that, or a, a process that allows us to embed into the consultant and the employer for the natural supports that what is, in real terms, a pretty basic skill set. It's almost an awareness. We're not doing that. Yeah, and, and, and again, I think it's, it's being aware of these issues and then building them in to our everyday work practices of, of supporting people in the workplace. Um, I mean, sometimes we sort of focus our attention on skilling the person up with how they're going with the shelf packing and how they're going with the front of house register or whatever they happen to be doing in the, as their, their task. But I don't think we're actually spending enough time with people during their downtime in the workplace and during debriefing sessions to provide in-depth counselling and emotional regulation supports. And I think that our, our customised employment practitioners need to see that as, again, not something that a person is going to be sent to a psychologist to, to, to address, but it's something that our CE practitioners need to be able to develop those frontline um, mental health first aid skills. And I think this is, this is a whole area that I think our CE practitioners can develop, these, these frontline mental health um, first aid skills to address some of these issues in a preventative way, but also acknowledging that if they can identify that this is a persistent issue for the person, that may be arranging for a focused intervention delivered by a psychologist might be part of the employment package. I, I think it's interesting you raise that and potentially um, 
the NDIS might be pointing at that by the introduction of workplace counselling as part of the funding lines. Mm. And, and it seems to suggest that, that because, like most things that the NDIS do, it's been introduced in a general way to allow for flexibility of its use. But it certainly points to me, and it's something we've identified in our work, that workplace counselling really should be a, a line item in everybody's employment support package because uh, irrespective, at some point, you may need some sort of workplace counselling. And at the same time, um, my discussions uh, with the agency tend to indicate that you can use that actually as part of the process of developing um, natural supports in the workplace. So I think it's there. The signals are there for us to do it. The question is now, okay, how do we take what, I guess for some of us it appears to be a very simple process, but it really has a, you know, has a clinical um, underlying um, basis. How do we take that, simplify it, so that employment consultants can start to use these skills and teach these skills and support the client to to develop these skills so that they can, I guess, naturally support themselves in the workplace without it becoming uh, a behaviour that challenges people. And again, we come back to that fact of the question you asked at the very beginning. <laughs> why do we why, why do we wait? Why don't we get in early? And look, I think it's also um, it's an awareness issue of, of what services and additional supports are out there, um, including uh, how best to be able to use what the the NDIS has to offer. And I think sometimes our, our employment practitioners, um, are just thinking about one or two line items that they're typically working with. And I think it points to the fact that good customised employment practitioners need to have a breadth of understanding about the, the line items and the services and the options that people can have built into their uh, National Disability Insurance Scheme plans. Um, and, for example, being able to access a psychologist uh, for some of these focused interventions could be something that a customised employment practitioner needs to identify up front. But I'd also say here um, the age-old issue of breakdown of communication in the workplace or indeed needing to establish some good communication supports from day one and a customised employment practitioner working with a person and their family to make sure that a good speech pathologist has been engaged as part of the employment planning process. Now, you mightn't be turning up at a person's workplace with a multidisciplinary team standing behind you with a psychologist and an OT and a speech pathologist. And, I, I hope we're not, and, and, <laughs> I, I think that that, that that could be overwhelming for any workplace and in, employer and a recipe for disaster. But I think our employment um, practitioners can have this team of people sitting behind them and working with the client outside of the workplace and indeed working in a consultative way with the employment practitioner so the employment practitioner can bring the best evidence-based supports with the person to the employer in the most undisruptive way possible. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you and I think it's... it's it's why, I, you know, when we started developing the, the qualification around customised employment in Australia, which is, as you know, is undergoing ASPA review at the moment, um, it's why we developed that, that particular module that was around uh, NDIS funding uh, and supports because it, it's, it's, 
it's a skill set that we don't commonly see. I, I, and, and if we do, and we've about, you know, being disingenuous to, to support staff and employment staff, it, it's, it's not fully understood. It's almost an afterthought. And what we're talking about is, is giving the consultant an in-depth knowledge of the line items and then giving them a basic understanding of the support of clinical supports that, that are available that they might want to access if necessary if the intervention goes beyond their capacity. And I think that's probably something we need to recognise is that the employment consultant uh, role, uh, whether it be um, pre or post uh, placement, is a very highly qualified skill set, yet it's not a recognised skill set because, well, there's no, I mean, honestly, uh, and again, this is, I'm like a, you know, this is probably me sort of screaming at the choir in a sense, but it just astounds me that people think they can actually do this job without actually any real um, technical understanding of the processes. Um, you know, it's, Okay, now I'm probably just crossed the, the range here and I'm going off into complain land, but certainly one of the observations I've had in recent times is that everybody thinks they can deliver discovery and customised employment just by reading a book with no training. I mean, clearly, I mean, I'm just not interested in having my doctor turn up who read the dummy's guide to <laughs> surgery. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I mean, that, that, that comes back to my age-old bugbear here. Here we are, Peter, we're in the complaining part of the session. We'll be coming back in and being more solution-focused as, as we, we will in move the towards case. the end. But the, <laughs> the time and time again, um, I find myself in meetings, um, attending uh, professional development workshops, um, and people keep saying, oh, look, it's just common sense. That's all yeah. we need to do is yeah, but it's a little but bit it's, of common sense. Yeah, but as uh, clinicians, well, we know that doesn't exist. Yeah, <laughs> it, common sense is very rare. Look, the, the, the other thing that really gets my gander up, Peter, is when people tell me it's not rocket science. Hey, that's my statement. <laughs> it's not rocket science. And look, I, I, I think this concept of it's not rocket science is actually insidious and very dangerous. Um, it's suggesting to people that you don't require knowledge and skills to do what is effectively very complex work with complex situations, both for the person and the work environment in which they're going into. So I think you really do need knowledge and skills. Um, and the other thing is in telling people this is not rocket science, and then when things go wrong, uh, employment practitioners then start to, to get down on themselves and they think, but they told us it's common sense. They told us it's not rocket science. And I just can't get this job to work out for this person. What am I doing wrong here? Well, it's not that the employment practitioner is doing anything fundamentally wrong. It's just we as a service system have failed the employment practitioners. We've failed to provide them with the knowledge and the skills that they need to do what is fundamentally a complex job. We've failed to acknowledge that it is a complex job um, and we're pretending that, that our workforce can do this without knowledge and skills and, uh, and they can't. I mean, and the behaviour support area is a classic example. We're not expecting every employment practitioner to be a psychologist 
or an occupational therapist or a speech pathologist. But what we do want them to understand is the basics of what we call a biopsychosocial approach to assessment and understanding the person and how to do that. We do want our employment consultants to be able to conduct observations, to do interviews, and maybe even conduct a few basic standardised assessments to help with what we call a functional behaviour assessment. So Again, maybe. So, yeah. So these, these are, this is some of the knowledge and skills base that we just have not as yet provided our employment consultants with. Yeah, look, I, I think it points to something really interesting that, that we probably used to use but don't use, and certainly we used to teach um, support staff, this, the, anybody that worked with uh, clients that, that had challenging behaviours or behaviours that challenged the way you want to describe it. We used to teach them how to do star assessments and this sort of stuff as a mm. normal part of their support process. Now, we don't see that anymore. So, you know, maybe one of the solutions at the starting point is a basic skill of let's teach people the star assessment, which to my mind then all of a sudden turns the antenna on and they become a little bit more aware of the environment and the factors in the environment. Uh, that would seem to me to be a simple starting point. So when we look at something like that, and Keith, you sound like it's the Adams family of doors creaking and <laughs> behind you, but we'll leave that one alone. Um, it's, it, it, it's all rather scary because we're here in the dark as well. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, excellent. So if we think about something like that, what's the basic skill set we need to start thinking about that we add to the employment consultant that that goes some way towards understanding this, that makes the PBS process start to embed itself as a skill set in the employment consultant? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, I, I think that it's some of these, these fundamentals of knowing what we need to know about the person over and above their vocational likes and dislikes, uh, preferences and priorities, and over and above what their basic skills are to engage in conversation with people or to do fundamental tasks in the workplace. So I think it's really important that we understand that a lot of the behaviours of concern that seem to arise, which can be a huge barrier to a person sustaining and, and maintaining employment, as some of the health issues. And I think employment consultants need to see their role uh, as ensuring that the person has had a, a really thorough health assessment as part of preparing to go to work. Um, because there are lots of issues, uh, poorly diagnosed medical conditions, um, pain management, um, <laughs> Good, good, good dental care. Yeah, these, I, these I, I was going to say. The, yeah, yeah, the background. These are some of the background factors that we don't always consider to be part of our role when we're acting as an employment consultant. But these background factors can be the make or break of a person's success in the workplace. So starting with that sort of assessment and making sure that the person's had 
what we would in, in normal circumstances in the vocational world call a good pre-employment physical. Well, and that simply points to the fact that as part of the evolution of customised employment and certainly discovery as we've been evolving it, um, because it isn't a static process. You can't use the process from 10 or 20 years ago that was published and go, oh, that's still valid, because it's not. The work environment's changed. But you raise the point of dental. And it takes me back to my support worker days where where often one of the things we used to train our staff and say is, look, one other thing, when you start seeing the client acting out or doing something aberrant or violent or whatever, you need to consider that maybe the message is they might have a sore tooth because, you know, often our clients are, uh, their verbal skills don't go to the capacity of being able to express something that like pain, what it is that they tend to act out. So maybe what we're missing here is is those fundamental direct support skills that we used to teach need to be applied to employment staff as well. Yeah. And and I think then after we've sort of had that pre-employment physical, I mean, I think we also need to see the role of the employment practitioner as extending to that breadth of understanding of the person outside of the workplace and understanding what's going on at home for the person. Oftentimes, I think the, the behavioural scenarios that we're confronted with in the workplace might have been exacerbated by something at work, might have been realised because something has triggered that behaviour in the workplace. But the genesis of that behaviour was something that's happening at home, something that's happening in their personal life. It might have led to several nights of not being able to sleep because they're worried about something. Um, and I think it's really important for the employment specialist to consider that it's their role to explore some of these issues beyond the workplace that could be contributing to the person's behaviour in the workplace. Well, that really highlights the importance of, of starting a process in the home, engaging with the family and and the role of the family and the, and the home visit. I mean, it, it clearly, if you ignore those factors and if you simply focus on the individual and finding them a job, you're not going to have that background knowledge that actually could potentially eliminate um, something that might prevent the individual from maintaining or even finding employment. Clearly, often people say to us, oh, you know, I, I don't want to start in the home. Uh, my my organisation says we can only do this in our office and the client has to come to the office. And, you know, someone who was a, uh, an employment consultant where we did all of our work in the field and then we're forced to deliver it in the office under the edict that the client comes to us, um, you lost all that that subtlety, that nuances that are vitally important to understanding the individual. Yeah. Look, this, again, um, time for reminiscence, isn't it, Peter? Well, we're going to know, Keith. I mean, th th this certainly throws me back to, to my days when I used to work for the Department of Human Services uh, in Tasmania. Uh, and one of my early roles um, was to do initial assessments uh, of people's eligibility for services. Um, and prior to my uh, going into that role, uh, again, it, it was very much people had to present at the front office and bring in their paperwork um, and, and sit down and answer a bunch of questions and they went away and sort of a month or so later the proceedings of a committee were delivered to them. Um, I changed that process um, 
and with the, with the support of a, a very insightful um, uh, regional manager at the time and started to do all of the initial assessments for eligibility as home visits. And it provided so much more information, a richer context so that we could make some really important uh, determinations and that we weren't simply at the, uh, the monthly referral committee making determinations of eligibility, but we had enough information in front of us so that once, as soon as the person was deemed eligible, we could actually start service provision within a week or so. Um, and <clears throat> that more intimate home-based visit is so important. And I think that's a really important element of the good implementation of discovery is that it's actually done on the couch at home with the person and their family. Yeah. And I, this is something that we should never compromise uh, in the delivery of uh, employment assessments. It, it really points and highlights to the fact that, that the behaviour support starts in the home, it starts at the beginning of the journey, and it's, it's probably one of the continuing factors. I mean, <clears throat> if we look at employment from a perspective of we're trying to deliver careers, not simply a job, probably sitting beside that career process is that is the idea of understanding the, 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 the environmental and behavioural contexts that would work for the client. So realistically, we've just highlighted potentially two things. We're starting to think about careers. Maybe what we need to do is put those, think about the behaviour supports that need to go with those careers uh, to ensure there is a career. So we're, we're we're really pointing at two more things that, that by and large, are not really being um, a normal part of the employment process to date. But clearly, there is a need for it. Yeah, and look, I, one of the things that, that's really uh, in, started to interest me in the in the last couple of months, as we've become more and more adept at using online uh, communication, um, is to explore the possibilities of using video links uh, for employment consultants to do regular debriefs um, with their clients. And we can talk about the importance of being on the couch with the person in ideal circumstances, and we really think this is the, the way to go when it comes to building the discovery plan with the person. Um, but also, I think, let's start to explore how we might use video conferencing. Now, it, it mightn't be the ideal first way to start developing the discovery process with the person. Um, and I'm still old fashioned enough to say that a face-to-face -face home visit is definitely the way to go. Um, but it might be that in between home visits, you're doing some short check-ins via video link with the person and their family to build the conversation so that when you do do the home visits, the person and their family are already warmed up to the conversation. But I'd also extend that to once we get the person into the workplace, the employment consultant might not be able to be with the person every day. And the person might have a good day, they might have a bad day, uh, then they go home at night and they're sitting on issues and maybe mum or dad or their brother or sister is, is not the person they want to have a conversation with. But as a positive behavioural employment strategy, um, you as the employment consultant might just arrange to have a 10-minute um, video link with that person each night um, at 6 o'clock 
just to check in how things were going at work that day. So I think there's a lot that we can do from our, our COVID-19 learning experiences that we can start to build in to our employment supports process, which are very consistent with the principles and practices of positive behaviour support. Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're probably doing that with family members, but we haven't actually thought about it as a as an employment support tool. I mean, the perfect example for me is is my nine year old granddaughter um, uses uh, Messenger uh, as, and the video service on Messenger to to check in with me on a regular basis. Um, and it that you know think about it as something as simple as that we're using with with family it wouldn't be difficult for us to sit there and go, okay, um, once a fortnight or so on, uh, we we schedule an hour out of our evening and go, right, let's check in with a half a dozen clients. It, it's five minutes. Um, it's not a clinical session. It's a, hi, how are you going? Um, you know, is there anything we can help you? Let them get some of the things that might be providing some sort of anxiety, let them get it off their chest because it's simply giving voice to it will often... Um, uh, mollify the anxiety. Mm. So it's I mean, it clearly, I think we've illustrated today, Keith, in, in, in you know, the past 45 minutes, there's a whole range of very simple solutions to a very complex problem that, that form a skill set that is largely missing from the employment consultant's armoury. Um, and I think that's, you know, we were having the discussion obviously over the last few days about how do we take clinical process and turn it into a what effectively is a, uh, a simple learnable skill set that employment consultants could add to their armoury. And I think we've actually highlighted a range of skills that would not be complex to, to teach to an employment consultant that could add, um, it could be quite significant to the client. Yeah. And I think that we can, we can start to take the best evidence that we have and the technologies that we know work in the context of positive behaviour support. And I think we can normalise them in the everyday work environment. And we can start to talk about, rather than clinical interventions, we can start to talk about employment performance reviews. We can start to talk about employment performance development. And indeed, at the sticky end, we can bring positive behaviour support to bear when what we're actually dealing with in the employment context is a performance management situation. And I think that positive behaviour support has a lot to offer all the way along that continuum from setting up the person for the best possible outcome for their employment through to intervening when things are really tough and, and there is an employment performance uh, issue that needs to be addressed in the workplace. So, so we start with a simple skill set, a simple set of awarenesses and basic skills that a consultant can apply. And at the same time, we give them the background knowledge where they know at some point, they know when they get to a certain point, they've got to pull the trigger on an allied health professional. So we're starting to paint a really simple picture. And I know we, I shouldn't use the word simple to a complex situation, but you know, it is simple, and I think it was Einstein who said solution should be as simple as possible and no, no simpler. Um, but I think that's what we're painting here, Keith. We're painting a picture that let's start simple, let's build a simple set of skill sets and awareness with a consultant, uh, but give them the background knowledge so that they know at some point this is the point where I've got to bring in an allied health professional. So, Keith, this has been a brilliant 50 minutes, believe it or not. <laughs> well, that, 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 that time passed rather quickly. It, it did, and again, indeed. 
Yeah, and I know this is a topic that both you and I are very passionate about, Peter. So it's been an absolute pleasure so uh, to you... have this conversation and, and hopefully um, this is something in the employment space we can continue that conversation going forward in, in various forums and, and in developing the uh, curriculum that's needed to prepare our um, customised employment practitioners. All right, Keith, you're not, you're not getting out of it that simply. So uh, one more thing from you, Keith. So what's the next step for us? What do you think? If, you, if, if I said to you today, Keith, we've got to start tomorrow, what's our step? What's our first point of call? Where, are we, where do we start, Keith? Look, I, I think from the point of view of we need to better prepare our customised employment practitioners going forward, and I would say that we need to build in the, the training and professional development resources um, for customised employment practitioners that are inclusive of positive behaviour support. And I think for those of us that are working in the positive behaviour support space, we need to come together um, as a group and work out how we can best adapt and make reasonable adjustments to our positive behaviour support technology to make it a technology that is effective and indeed welcome in the workplace. Words of wisdom there, Keith. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, much appreciated. Um, your contribution is always valued. And thank you for your time today. And weirdly enough, I'm about to say goodbye to you and um, I'll ring you in 10 minutes for our next meeting. Thank you for your time today, Keith. It's been terrific. Cheers, Peter. Bye. Bye. And thank you, everyone, for listening. That's Keith McVilly giving us um, some re really good insights and some things for us to think about today around behaviour support in the workplace. Thanks for your time today, everyone.